0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, a few years ago, uh, it seems like an eternity now, but a few years ago during a presidential election, and I caveat this, this is not a political sermon, this is not a political analogy, please, whatever your propensity, don't go down that road. But during a political convention, and I will not name which one, uh, I was listening to some of the speeches, and I heard in multiple speeches uh, a similar phrase that was used. It was used in in, in multiple people's uh, speeches, trying to convey this kind of overarching theme that they wanted the convention to be about, and the phrase was, it takes a village, it takes a village, right? And so what they were trying to communicate is, we are all in this together, and we can't accomplish what we desire unless everyone plays their part. That phrase actually comes from, likely comes from, an old African proverb, Proverb, and the, the fullness of it is, it takes a village to raise a child. Any of you guys heard that before? Good. No one raised their hand. It's fantastic. Audience participation levels are high here. Thank you, Cameron Casey. Uh, nine-year-old has heard it. Eleven-year-old has heard it. All right. Uh, it takes a village to raise a child. In this African proverb, right, it reflects both kind of uh, desires and priorities, as well as realities and necessities. It it it, it reflects desires and priorities in the notion that a child is best raised in community with others. Right? It acknowledges that certain things can be done better together than they can be done separately. That we're able to support better together. That that a village would be able to pass on wisdom to a child better together than individually. That they would be able to provide better opportunities Together, then they would be alone. A belief, a desire, priorities that a village is best to raise a child, but also it reflects necessity. That most villages and the communities where these phrases would have come from needed help in order for a child to be raised. Most of these villages probably would have initially come together in order to do things like hunt together, to gather food together, to even be able to provide sustenance for one another. Having a child raised not individually but amongst a village would better ensure that that child could be protected. Right? Only within a village would they be able to have specialized resources like a doctor or a craftsman that couldn't be provided all by one individual. It took a village to raise a child because in that situation with limited resources, it was impossible to safely provide and raise for a child. Now here's why I tell you all of this. Christianity at its core is a village religion. It's a village faith. It takes a village is a core foundational belief of the Christian faith. If you don't believe me, when you go back home today, flip open to Acts chapter 2, and read about the establishment of the first church, the new church, after the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. What you'll find is the picture of a Christian village. A place where men and women saw themselves not primarily as distinct an individual, but as a part of a new family, a new body, a new village of believers that were called to play a part in each other's lives, to hold all things in common, to eat together, to weep together, to celebrate together, to lean into this brand new, amazing, life-changing truth of the gospel together. And that didn't go away as the church spread out from Jerusalem. Even as the gospel went out to the rest of the world and these local pockets of believers that we now call churches started to crop up, we continued to see that same life. A commitment and a close-knit nature within those communities and then relationships between individual local churches and other churches. Churches. Paul's letters, as we read them in the New Testament, are often not just written as an apostle, as a leader in the church to followers, but it's also written as a family member that cares for and involves himself in the lives of brothers and sisters that he loves. Much of our shepherding as elders amongst Mercy's Door, amongst this church, is to call you into this mindset. If you will, to call you into the village. To beseech you to be honest about who you actually are. To be known by other people. To allow others into your life. To to allow them to bear your burdens with you. To push in on your life. To be receptive that others are needed in your life. But we also need to do the opposite, which is to convince you that you are needed in others' lives. You know, I've said this before, and it's it's a hard thing, and I know it feels maybe like a kind of a a heavy thing for a pastor to lay upon you, but your presence is needed within this church. If the Lord has called you to this church, then your presence presence, the fullness of your presence and involvement is needed within this church. Let me put it another way. When you don't show up on a Sunday, someone else misses out in their walk with Christ because you're not here. When you don't engage in gospel community or it's not a priority or you kind of come and go or you come but don't fully engage and fully involve yourself and buy in, others walk with Christ Others' ability to believe the Gospel suffers because you're not there. Because it takes a village to believe the Gospel. We have been walking through this book in Philemon and we have looked the last two weeks at the two main characters in this letter. Onesimus, who was a runaway slave who abandoned his master Philemon... And in so doing, in some way, shape, or form, though we don't know, sinned against him. Causing him harm and suffering. Onesimus is sent back by Paul to come face to face with Philemon. Onesimus is one who has sinned. Onesimus is one who is being reconciled. And Onesimus is one who has come into the faith of Christ Jesus And then we look last week at the other character, Philemon. Philemon is also one who has received radical grace from Jesus. Philemon is also a brother who has been harmed and has walked through suffering. And Philemon is also a brother in Christ who was called by Paul to sacrificially love. But today we're looking at the third character in the midst of this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And he's one that's off stage. He's, He's one that is not in the midst of the conflict. But he is one, Paul, that plays a critical role in the life of both Philemon and Onesimus and in their relationship. Paul is the village. And I want us to see as Paul interacts with Philemon and Onesimus what the Lord would have us to do as members of the family of faith. Because it'd be really easy to look at Paul and say that Onesimus and Philemon, that's a situation that is quote-unquote none of his business. He wasn't harmed by Onesimus. And Onesimus' past, why does Paul need to interject in that? It'd be easy for us to say, Paul, 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 Paul. None of your business. Or, maybe you're a little more pro-Paul and so you wouldn't say, Paul, it's none of your business. You would say, Paul... You don't need to burden yourself with this. You don't need to shoulder the burden on this. This is going to be hard. This is going to take from you. This is going to require emotional energy. And yet, Paul does lean in. And in that, briefly this morning, I want us to see three ways that we are called to believe the Gospel and lean into loving others. Three ways, if you will, to be the village of faith to help one another believe the gospel. And they are this, one, that we are called to love boldly, love boldly. Two, to trust the Lord, trust the Lord. And three, to commit to our covenantal family, commit to our covenantal family. First, love boldly. I want you to look specifically at verses 8 on down through 16. This is where we're going to be primarily camping out this morning. And the letter from Paul to Philemon says this, starting in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father, father in the faith, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me, and I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, but in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel." But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, but as a a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul, as we said, inserts himself directly into the lives of Onesimus and Philemon and into their relationship. Now clearly, as we see from the whole letter, Paul has a deep and intimate relationship with both of these men. He knew them well. He could have called them both sons in the faith. And also his true brothers in Christ Jesus. But he's doing here in this letter the opposite of what most relationship advice nowadays would tell him. Right? Relationship advice nowadays would say, Paul, give them space. Don't press in on them like that. Or they might say, Paul, don't upset the apple cart. Leave well enough alone. Things seem to be stable and at peace. Don't don't agitate the waters. Or certainly, even within the Christian church, they would say something like this, Paul, don't judge them. Don't determine for yourself what is right or wrong. Let them determine what is best, Paul, in their own timing. In, In writing this very letter, And if you haven't been here the last two days, Onesimus, the runaway bondservant, was the one that hand-delivered this letter, probably from Rome back to Colossae to Philemon. So Onesimus, the runaway bondservant, who may very well have the, the, the kind of analogy of some sort of warrant out for him, because he was breaking law in leaving his contractual agreement as a servant to Philemon. He takes this letter in hand and he hands it to Philemon. And in doing this, Paul is risking his relationship with both of these men. Things seemed fine before. Paul is speaking glowingly about both Philemon and Onesimus and the relationship that he has with them. But for some reason, Paul feels it necessary to put that relationship, those relationships on the line. Now, why would he do this? And the answer is that Paul believes the Gospel for himself and for Philemon and Onesimus. And to turn that around, in order for you and I to love boldly, we need to believe the Gospel for ourselves and for others. Let me explain. The gospel, by definition, in its Greek word, means good news. But we've oftentimes said that the definition of good news means that it's good news that is inherently invading bad spaces. In order for it to be good news, it's got to answer a problem. The gospel is good news that invades bad spaces. And both of these things are true. The Gospel says that we need help, that we are not enough, that we don't know what's best, but the Gospel also says that there is real hope, real healing, and real life available for us in Christ Jesus. The situation with Philemon and Onesimus seemed good enough, but God's Word says otherwise. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 5, the words of Jesus. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar of the temple, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. Jesus Himself says, What's most important here is not that you bring sacrifices to the temple. The most important sacrifice that you bring before the Lord is that you would love Him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your brother, your neighbor, as yourself. And so if you have anything, if your brother has anything against you, then the most important thing that you can do as a Christ follower is not bring some offering to the temple, but go and be reconciled to Him. The Gospel says that we, we don't know what's best. We don't always know what we ought to do, and so the Gospel pushes in on our lives. It tells us what is best. It tells us where we should drop our plans and our inclinations, and instead, even if we don't understand, simply follow what the Lord says. And for Paul, he says to Onesimus, your brother has something against you, and so you must go and be reconciled to him. But, as I said, the Gospel also says that there's real hope. And so as Onesimus goes, as Paul sends Onesimus to Philemon, there's real hope. Ephesians chapter 2 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He has made us both Jews, Gentiles, one and another. He's made us one. He's broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It goes on. It says that He, Jesus, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all hostility. The Gospel is required for us to lean in and to love people boldly. And we need to believe it for ourselves even before we believe it for other people. And I'll just tell you why. This is simple. You're not going to invite others into what you don't believe is effective or true in your own life. If Paul himself didn't believe that it was utterly necessary for him to be reconciled to all of his brothers and sisters, he would not believe it for Onesimus. Right? Like, this is just true. If you came outside and you saw your neighbor's house on fire... Hopefully, you'd grab a hose and you'd start spraying. Why? Well, one, because you believe that fire is bad. Okay? I'm not trying to push in on any sensitive topics for anyone here in the congregation. I love you, my brother and sister. Fire is bad. You believe it. Second, theoretically, you would believe, hey, water can help put out fire. And so, you go and do. Let me put it real practical in Christian terms. The reason that you don't share your faith and me is because we don't fully believe it. We don't fully believe it's true. Because if we did, if we really, truly believed that the God of the universe that we had eternally offended and rebelled against so loved us and so desired us not to have an eternity apart from Him in judgment and wrath, but came from heaven to earth to give Himself so that freely, simply through faith, we would be reconciled to eternal joy. I mean, come on. If you go have a good steak somewhere, you're going to tell a dozen people about the restaurant. Hopefully me. How much more would we be telling others about the eternal grace and mercy of a God who really cares and really loves and really heals? And some of you guys are going to say, hey, Michael, listen, I'm all for loving people when they invite me in, but I'm not going to push in. Because that's, that's me judging you know, pushing on their sin or pushing on their needs or tell them what they should be doing, that's me judging and I'm telling you it's not it's love. And if you don't believe me, listen to the words again of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him go and tell him his fault between you and him alone and if he listens to you, you have gained back your brother. Why do we lean in? Not for our sake, for theirs, to love them. I one time heard a quote uh, by uh, Penn Gillette. You guys know him? So, Penn and Teller. Penn's the guy that talks, big guy that talks in the magician act, Penn and Teller. He is a staunch atheist, one of the loudest ones you can probably find. However, he was once, after a show, given a Bible by a man. And he was interviewed later on, and he was telling the story of this man. And in a shocking twist, he said how much he respected this man for coming up after the show, knowing that he was an atheist, and giving him this Bible. And the reporter asked why, and he said this, How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize, not to evangelize, not to tell them about Jesus? Gillette asked. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I will simply tackle you. And this is far more important than that. And the same goes not just for the first coming to faith. The same goes within the church for sin and doubt and unbelief and fear. When you see someone struggling, wrestling, wandering from the goodness of the Lord, when you see someone who is bought into lies that other things will fulfill apart from the Lord, when you see marriages and relationships that are struggling under the weight of expectation or insecurity or fear or doubt rather than resting in the gospel, the only loving thing to do is lean in to speak the truth of the gospel, to fight. For the joy of our brothers and sisters, it's the only loving thing to do. Here's a just real practical tip if you're trying to figure out whether or not you do this well. I, I, I tell this to uh, our gospel community leaders when we had elder candidates and other guys that I've raised up. I just said, listen, think about how many awkward conversations you have in a week. How many conversations, not, not like if you're awkward, right? Because that you can't count that. If you're just baseline like me awkward in conversation it's not the conversation i'm talking about how many conversations do you have in a week that you don't really want to have they're like oh man this is gonna be awkward this is gonna be hard i'm gonna have to press in on something i feel ill-equipped for and if the answer is zero you're not doing this right like we call you into gospel community, call you to commit to gospel community, and then we warn you about gospel community? Because gospel community should be filled with awkward conversations. Because it should be filled with people that love boldly. We are called to love boldly. Second, we are called to trust the Lord. Early on in my marriage, I learned to, to lean in. I'm pretty good at awkward conversations. Or maybe I'm just prone to them. I learned to lean in, but I suffered from another problem, which was trusting the Lord in the areas where I leaned in. See, the Lord calls us to engage and to shepherd and to care for and to help others, but He doesn't call us to fix others. He doesn't call us to fix relationships. He doesn't call us to fix problems. He is the Redeemer, not us. He is the healer. He is the Lord of all. He does all of the fixing. If you don't believe me, find any problem in all of Scripture, and I guarantee you it will ultimately be resolved, not by man, but by the Lord. We've said this before. When you come into one of those places in Scripture where you're like, God, how is this ever going to lead to redemption? How how are you ever going to have a people your own? How are you ever going to have a people that truly know you and love you? The answer is always the Lord will make a way. The issue for most of us of why we feel attention with leaning in or having others lean into us is because when we've experienced people pushing in, they're not pushing in with confidence that the Lord will heal, they're typically pushing in with confidence that they can heal. They're typically pushing in that they have their own plan of restoration, not pushing in to turn your eyes on Christ who will restore all things. Again, look back in the passage we just read. Paul knew what the right response was for Philemon to Onesimus. He knew what he desired to happen. Paul sent Onesimus back. He wanted Philemon to receive him and to receive him with joy, not to punish him for past sins. In fact, I think you can clearly make a case that he wanted to have Philemon free Onesimus of his service to him. To no longer see him as a bondservant, but instead to treat him, see him, and welcome him as a treasured, beloved brother. Paul knew what he wanted and he knew what ought to be done, but guess what Paul doesn't do? He refuses to command Philemon to do it. Though I am bold enough, verse 8, he says, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, instead I prefer to appeal to you. Paul, rather than commanding as an apostle, knowing that he would have gotten the response he desired, instead invites Philemon leaving ultimately the decision up to Philemon. So what is Paul doing? Is he trusting Philemon's like inherent goodness or wisdom or fair play? And the answer is no. Paul amongst all people doesn't trust the flesh of others. He knows what is deep inside of our hearts, selfishness, sinfulness oftentimes. Paul trusts the Lord. He trusts that through the working of and the power of the Holy Spirit, that Philemon and Onesimus will be led into repentance and forgiveness and love and reconciliation. And this is risky. I said this before, and it's maybe not likely to happen, but within the realm of legal possibility, Onesimus could have been sentenced to death for his breach of faith against Philemon. More likely, he would have either been imprisoned or whatever term of service that he had agreed to and entered into with Philemon, at the very least, that term of service would have been extended significantly. Paul refusing to command Philemon is risky. So if he knew what the Lord desired, then... If he knew what Philemon ought to do in the Lord, why didn't he just force the issue? And the answer is because, as much as the outcome is important, the means to the outcome are just as important. Right? That beautiful phrase where we say that the end justifies the means is never true in Christianity. Hear that. Never true in Christianity. Because our God is sovereign over every speck of dust in the air, which means he is sovereign not just in the outcomes, but the means by which those outcomes take place, and oftentimes in our lives, the process is every bit as important as the outcome. See, Paul wasn't just after obedience by Philemon and Onesimus. He was after their worship and their faith. Paul is after Philemon and Onesimus being reconciled. But he's also after the fact that they would come to know and understand the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would come to see that they have life eternal and abundant in Jesus. That he is a good shepherd that leads into paths of righteousness that following Him even through the valley of the shadow of death ultimately leads to eternal joy. I, I, I preach this to myself in parenting all the time and preach it to other parents as well. And I'm not very good at believing it, so I'll just say it out loud and then you can hold me accountable. Lean in. Be my village. right? I'll say this all the time. Our job as parents is not to keep our kids from storms. It's to teach them where to go when the storms come. Our job is not to keep and protect and wall off our kids from every storm of trial and suffering. It is to teach them where to run to, where to anchor, where to cling to when the storms of life roll in. And that's Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. If he simply commands Philemon and commands Onesimus, and if they are simply obedient without understanding the truth of the Gospel, then it is akin to giving a man a fish when there was an invitation in the Lord to teach him how to fish. To teach Philemon and Onesimus to run to the Lord, to follow the Lord, to trust the Lord. We are bold in our love and we push in. But we push in not with confidence in our plan, not with confidence in our persuasion, not with confidence in our authority, but we push in with confidence in the gospel and the confidence that the Spirit of Christ Jesus is alive and at work in the men and women in this church. Finally, we commit to our covenantal family. Paul must have had a million things on his mind when he wrote this letter. He was in prison in prison and likely a year or two away from his death right paul at this point in time has spread the gospel to i can't imagine how many people on multiple continents he has planted an enormous amount of churches he is ready to go and meet christ jesus he is ready to have his race done But the Lord is still calling him to lean in. The Lord is still calling him to continue to love and to lead, to continue to run this part of his race with Philemon and Onesimus. Now listen, we don't have a lot of older saints in our church. For those that we do have, they need to hear that the Lord is not done with us he doesn't send us off to pasture, right? He, he, I wish he would send us off to a, a warm, sunny golf course in Florida. Maybe that's the missional work he calls you into. If so, I'd love to plant that church with you. Come and talk to me. I've got some experience. I'll give you a resume. But while we may not have a lot of older saints nearing uh, retirement or engaging in retirement, here's what we do have. We have a lot of men and women and families who have, in the past, or maybe are wrestling now with whether or not they're going to fight through difficulty in this church, whether they're actually going to engage, whether they're going to withdraw or leave because of disagreement or hardship. Or awkwardness, or struggle, or sin on the behalf of other people. Listen, I'll be honest with you. We're about to do a state of the church. Over the last two years, we've had more people leave this church, not us sending out over the last two years, than we have in the history of Mercy's Door. And it's not be- been because of some gross, immoral sin or failure within the leadership or within the church it's been because life is hard, things are tricky, and when people have leaned in, they haven't liked it. When things have gotten difficult, they've just said, hey, this is easier to go this way. I'll give you an analogy. Uh, About a a year ago, I got to do some premarital counseling, um, and I got to do premarital counseling for a man and a woman who was getting married who were not believers. And so, I was like, hey, listen, if this is my opportunity to preach the gospel for a couple times as I gather with them, then I'm in. It's going to be a weird premarital counseling because I'm going to be counseling them into a marriage based on the gospel that they don't yet believe, but go back to the last point, trust the Lord, right? So in that conversation, we got onto the topic of divorce. And so I just said, hey, what's your view on divorce? And so both of them, I think, rightfully so, because right, like nobody comes out immediately. Hopefully, and is like, I'm really for it, big fan. I think it's always in my back pocket, ready, ready to go. Right, like nobody, you know, like, hopefully, says that in premarital counseling before you say I do. Um, and so they were a little bit more, you know, subtle than that. But they were like, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes it has to happen. And now again, they came from. Uh, families where divorce uh, was um, a part of their story, and uh, sometimes it has to happen. Don't want it, you know, it's really something we don't want at all, but, you know, sometimes it, it happens. And I simply said to him, listen, here is the truth. The, the truth is that if you believe in divorce, you are setting yourselves up for such a shaky foundation that I can guarantee you certain things won't happen in your marriage. You will never truly be who you actually are, especially the unflattering parts. You won't allow those things to be known, not fully, truly known. You likely will not tap into and deal with the really deep, sticky, tricky areas of marriage. Because you won't be certain whether or not you'll make it out on the other side and therefore whether or not leaning into it will even be worth it. You'll always have a nagging fear that there is some line that you can somehow cross whether on purpose or on accident where the relationship will end. You'll always be asking the question, how far is too far? How much is too much? And they stood there and they said, I, I don't want that to be the case. It seems like a marriage can't work if it's founded like that. And listen, these were two believers that were starting to see the good and gracious design of the Lord when it comes to relationship and especially relationships that reflect our relationship with him. And marriage reflects that relationship. It is a shadow of our relationship with Christ Jesus. And the relationship of the church reflects that relationship. It is a shadow, a picture of our reconciliation and relationship to the Lord. Now here's why I tell you that. I tell you that because we, within our church, do something that we call covenantal membership covenantal meaning a relationship that is not based on a contract i used to always use the example of cell phone carriers though apparently no one has a contract with them anymore but if you ever had a cell phone like five plus years ago or even better than that if you ever had satellite tv okay you know about contracts that you can never get out of right but contracts they're entered into this way if you give me this then I will give you that. If you provide me this good or service, cell phone company, dish, then I will pay you money. But if, theoretically, at any point in time, either one of the parties stops providing their end of the contract, then the relationship ends. But that's not how a covenant works. A covenant is not primarily about what you get. A covenant is about what you promise to give. Within the New Testament, there are approximately 60 one another commandments that Paul makes. Everything from love one another to greet one another with a holy kiss. I never get greeted that way, by the way. Right? All of these one another's in the New Testament. Why is Paul lining those out? Paul never says, expect to be honored by one another. Expect to be greeted by a holy kiss. Expect... To be outdone in honor. Expect to be served and sacrificed for. Paul instead says, in light of what Jesus has done for you, go therefore and be that to one another. Our relationship within this family of believers is not based on mutual expectations. It's based on the Lord who already has given us new life and now, what we promise to give to one another is when you sign your membership covenant, if you have gone through it, there is nothing in there about what you get out of membership. And that's not to say that you don't get a lot. You do. You get to be in the most beautiful relationship of people known to mankind, the church. But the covenant is about what we declare that we will give to one another. Membership, being a part of a family, is a declaration that the Lord has called us to be a part of that family, to live life together, to believe the gospel together, to care for one another in the midst of suffering and sin, pushing on together in the mission of Christ toward the eternal glory that awaits all of us. And part of what this means is that we cannot be one argument. One discussion. One sin away from saying, I'm out. The church is not meant to live that way. Like, think about that for two seconds. Think about if you were thinking constantly, hey, I'm a part of a gospel community, but I'm not sure if I can really be myself. Because if I am, and is someone going to exclude me? Or is someone going to leave me because of my messiness? Because of my failures? Because of my faults? Will I lose brothers and sisters out of disagreements? Or if we talk about sin in my life or their life? I mean, I hope not, church. This is meant to be the safest place in the world, but in order for this to be the safest place in the, lo- in the world, we have to love God one another like Jesus has loved us and my goodness it would be a frightening thing if Jesus reserved all sorts of rights to get out of our relationship with him the Lord calls us to commit one time we went through covenantal membership class and I had a couple come up at the end and they were super respectful um and they said listen this mercy's door is not for us And I said, okay, uh, can you tell me why? And uh, they said, you guys take this membership thing and this covenant thing really serious. Like, I I think this is is more than what we're looking for. And here's the deal. One, they were polite and super kind. Uh, It was super affirming for me. (laughs) Affirming that we were calling people into the depth Of believing and living out the gospel that we ought to and here's why the covenantal requirements of mercy's door are simply what jesus calls us into as the church in the new testament in scripture we haven't added anything else that the lord doesn't call us into but this is what it looks like for us to be a family and church in order to be a part of that village, to love one another, to lean in, to trust the Lord that He's going to work even in messy areas. We have to commit to one another. Listen, I'll end here. We are a gospel-formed community. It's the only way that this gathering makes sense. Okay, I, like I, it, It's the only way this gathering makes sense. It's a, the only way our gospel communities make sense is if they are truly formed on the gospel. If we really are new creations. If Jesus really has forgiven each one of us all of our sins and failures. If we really have been reconciled to one another. If if the work really is done through Christ on the cross, it's the only way that this makes sense but if the gospel is true then we must live out our lives in that way because it's the only thing that makes sense if the gospel is true we are called to lean into others to love others to serve one another To bring our new identity in Christ into community with others. Listen, it's not intuitive. It's not. Like, I I will tell you this, and this is why we're intentional with gathering regularly. And I'm not afraid to fill your schedules with the church. Not activities of the church, but the people of the church. Because I know that the moment you leave a gathering of G.C., Or the moment that you leave this gathering here, and you go off to your jobs, you go off to your schools, you go off to your neighborhoods, you go off to any other relationship outside of the church, everything I just told you will be the exact opposite. You won't be loved because of Jesus, you'll be loved because of what you can do. What you can provide. What you can offer to other people. There won't be a safety net of the gospel that means that you can be as messy as you actually are because there's hope in redemption and others loving you like Jesus won't leave you because I tell you what, in the rest of the world, you know it, they will. Right? You go into your boss and say, hey, listen, I, just got, I need to confess a lot of things to you. Might as well pack up before you go have that meeting. Make the leave easier. Like That's just the truth of every other place in this world. It's not intuitive to us. It's not intuitive to the world outside of us. And so if we are doing something radically strange, we've got to do it together. Because it's the only way it works. That as we see each other wandering off apart from the gospel, we would pull one another back in. Listen to this. In the gospel, in the family of Christ Jesus, we can wrestle with what it looks like to live out gospel-formed community. We can try really hard to believe this and even fail because it's okay. Because the gospel is true and we have brothers and sisters around us that when we fail will pick us back up and fix our eyes back on Jesus again and walk with, with us as we seek to believe the gospel. So press in. Commit. Love boldly. Because Jesus is worth it, and he is leading us in good and pleasant places. Pray with me.